1: Is Bill Press and Friends on the District Productive Network.
2: On the showdown for with Obamacare yesterday. In fact, it was high drama with the president himself, a rare a visit to Capitol Hill, and an even more rare meeting with uh, both House and Senate Democrats. Uh, and of course, um, Donald Trump, who's not going to be bothered with governing. I mean, he's got more important things to do. Come on, give him a break. He's got hotels to build all over the world, got casinos to run and golf courses to play on and make sure they're not being flooded by climate change. You know, he's a busy businessman. He can't be bothered with uh, being president of the United States. So he sends Mike Pence up uh, to do his dirty work uh, on, on Capitol Hill. But I think the interesting stuff out of this yesterday came with President Obama's message to Democrats uh, it was not a public meeting, of course, but enough Democrats have talked about it. What well, we know the president told them was, and I was at the press briefing yesterday, and Josh Earnest told us reporters, the president's message was, "Obamacare has is a great program," we, and we've talked enough about it. You know my reservations about it. The president saying, "Look, Obamacare is a great program. It has helped millions and millions and millions of Americans. It is can be made better." Uh, But it's got a lot of good parts to it, and it's up to us now to defend it. And most importantly, it's up to Democrats not to help Republicans undo it in any way, that this is going to be tougher than they think. They're going to find themselves in a lot of hot water when they tell 22 million Americans who now have health insurance for the very first time for themselves and their families And when they tell them, oh, guess what? You're out of luck. you got to go back and see if maybe the insurance companies will sell you a policy, which they probably won't because you probably have some previous illness uh, for a member of your family. So just go back to the way things used to be. Republicans are going to find that very, very, very difficult, harder than they think. Uh, And President Obama, again, his message was, don't help them out. Don't meet them halfway. Don't give them – don't bail them out. Let In other words, basically, it's the what Colin Powell used to call the Pottery Barn Rule for Republicans on Obamacare. If they break it, they freaking own it. Uh, and I thought that was a great message on President Obama's part.
1: Just to give you a little bit of an fight idea. Fight together. Just to give you a little bit of an idea of how this fight is going to play out, Donald Trump uh, is tweeting. Already this morning. Yes, indeed. Oh, exactly. this. this is a Bill Press Show breaking news update. <laughs> Donald Trump tweeting this morning, 14 minutes ago, the Democrats, led by head clown Chuck Schumer, know how bad Obamacare is and what a mess they are in. Instead of working to fix it, they do the typical political thing and blame. The fact is Obamacare was a lie from the beginning. Keep your doctor, keep your plan. It is time for Republicans and Democrats to get together and come up with a health care plan that really works, much less expensive, and far better. Uh, Those are the words... From well, our soon-to-be
2: president, uh, there's several things wrong with that. Of course, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Again, it's another, <laughs> let's it's another, start there. No, it's another, <laughs> it's another Donald Trump lie. But you know, this is what they say. You hear this all the time. It's not working. It's too expensive. It um, and um, nobody and nobody likes it. Yeah, you know that's all baloney. It's not. It's it's just simply not the fact. Again, the 22 million American families have health insurance today and can afford it. Because they never, never, never could get it before the insurance companies would never accept them. They've got it today. Those people don't want to lose their health insurance. They don't want to lose their protection for themselves and for their families. And the fact is, 95% of Americans who have health insurance get it through their job. Of the rest of them who, who didn't have health insurance ever before, they get it through a state exchange or the federal exchange. And the fact is that 70%, get this, 70% of those people, again, who don't get it through their job, right, get health insurance through the exchange, 70% of them get a federal subsidy to buy their health insurance because they couldn't afford it otherwise. All right, so what you're saying to all of those people, again, is we're not gonna, if you get rid of Obamacare, no subsidy, no state exchange, no opportunity to buy health insurance unless you are totally at the mercy of the insurance companies. And that's what we are going to do. Uh, yeah. Try telling that to 22 million Americans and try telling them, we know we're taking this away from you because we know you'd rather not have health care protection for your family, for your kids, for your spouse, for anybody in your family who, who, who needs it. But you hear the same stuff all over again. Uh, so yesterday Republicans did. Uh, by the way, one other thing that President Obama told Democrats, which I think is phenomenal. Donald Trump, I mean, Donald Trump. What am I saying? President Obama told re- Democrats yesterday. He said, "You know what? Mostly they don't like this because it's called Obamacare. So from now on, let's call it Trump Care. Sure. Whatever they come up with, let's call it Trump Care. Okay. I love that. I love that. Let them own it. Yeah. Let them own sure. it. Sure." now own what is the question yeah they want to repeal so yesterday they took the first step they approved a resolution which a resolution that they will now consider a budget plan and whenever that vote takes place two or three weeks from now that budget will include the repeal of Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, as we know it. So they haven't done it yet. They took the first step to allow themselves to do it down the road. Uh, but down, but so that's to repeal again. They don't, as Paul Ryan admitted yesterday, they don't know what they would replace it with. Here is Paul Ryan trying to have it both
0: ways. We have a plan to replace it. We have plenty of ideas to replace it, and you'll you'll see as the weeks and months unfold. What we're talking about replacing it.
2: As the weeks and months (laughs) unfold. Wait. Those weeks and months could turn to years. Uh, By the way, it's already been seven years. (laughs) (laughs) They've been dicking around with this for seven years. They haven't done it yet. Yeah, that's Elijah Cummings yesterday. Seven years, they haven't done it yet. They haven't come up with a plan yet. Now they say, we still don't have a plan, but we're already going to repeal it. Yeah. This is a catastrophe Uh, In the making, I think it proves again, just like with the Congressional Ethics Committee, it proves that Republicans are going to um, overreach, overplay their hand and that it's going to backfire, which gets to the question of how, which I think is the question of the day. And it's a question that I get asked everywhere I turn. I'm on vacation. I was trying to stay away from this mess, (laughs) trying to stay away from politics, trying not to talk about Donald Trump. And everywhere I would go, people would say, Bill, how are we gonna survive Donald Trump? Uh, And that's really worth talking about. And it's interesting. I used to say, any sane-thinking American, I think, is asking that question, because it's gonna be bad. We said this before. It's going to be really, really bad, friends. I mean, this is not just, you know, we didn't get Al Gore, we got George Bush instead. I mean, this is Disasterville, because Donald Trump on every front, every single front, is totally against anything that we believe in, anything we stand for, anything we fought for, anything that we have won. Talk about President Obama's legacy with Cornel Belcher, uh, who is uh, author of a new book called A Black Man in the White House Barack Obama and the Triggering of America's Racial Aversion Crisis. A long title, a good book. Welcome. Nice to see you. (laughs) Good morning. Thanks for having me. All right. Great to see you. Hey, Al, how are you doing?
3: Doing well. A little cold this morning. (laughs) It is. (laughs) No, it's winter. It is. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, right.
2: Uh, President Obama at a meeting with House Democrats yesterday, is Obamacare? Do you believe the the, the single most the, the, thing, the one thing from his presidency that will be remembered, that he'll be celebrated for? If not, what else?
3: Well, I, I think there's a, a a lot of things that he'll be remembered for from his uh, from his presidency. I mean, Obamacare is certainly central to this, but but you'll remember that when he came into the office, we were in disarray. I mean, we were le- losing eight hundred thousand jobs a, a month, and, we, and financially we were and financially we were we were on we were on the brink. So, I mean, there was a there's a lot to be said about his stewardship through. Through that storm and getting us back on track. I mean, a lot of Americans aren't happy about the sort of direction of the country. But when you look at, the, but you look at the sort of where this country is now from where it was uh, when he took office, and and look at the growth that we've had. I mean, most of Europe and most of uh, large large parts of Asia would love to have the growth that that, that we've seen right now in unemployment at around four percent. I mean, that is you know an, an amazing accomplishment. And 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 although the you know. We've had issues in the Middle East, and certainly the Middle East is a very complicated place. But let's understand: this is also a president who said he was going to he was going to pull us out and pull us back mm-hmm. from. Uh, from the wars in the, in the Middle East, and, and certainly some some conservatives don't like it, but he has in fact kept his word and tried to and pull and pulled our armies back out of the Middle East and tried to negotiate in a way there to ha- to make make the the Arab states there a lot more involved in what's going on. Has it been completely successful? Has it been difficult? Uh, no, but I think if you understand where we were in 2008, with Americans frustrated about about us being front and central on ground troops in in the Middle East and fighting those wars, he's 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 kept he's kept his word there.
2: A part of his vision, one of his real goals was to be the first post-racial president, <laughs> oh, if, yes. if you will. And, <laughs> and that's implied uh, in your title. How has that worked out?
3: Well, it, it has, in in a lot of ways, it, it has triggered this consciousness about the changes that are coming in a country. Look, Barack Obama is someone who... For the first time, because of the diversity and the changing demographics in this country, someone could someone could lose the, the 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 white vote by 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 the massive numbers that he lost it, but still win back to back majorities. Right. So Barack Obama was is in fact the first president really to, to win back to back majorities, largely on the on the basis of of a very diverse changing demographic. Uh, you know, you're talking about you know 43, 42 percent of white voters, and then the, and then, and then, the, and then, in these battleground states where you're seeing the demographics change, particularly in states like Florida and, and increasingly North Carolina and Virginia, the demographics are are changing. He, you know, the Mitt Romney outperformed Ronald Reagan with with white voters, and Ronald Reagan won a landslide. Mitt Romney outperformed Ronald Reagan and and and, and, and what, got forty six, forty seven percent of the vote, forty seven percent of the vote last time around. That is because of the demographic changes, and to a certain extent and we shouldn't be surprised by this really to a certain extent it really is a realization that 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 america's becoming a majority at least a plurality minority nation and of course we're getting some backlash to that
2: we're not there yet we're, right.
3: n- we're not there yet but but and and see and that's what i unfold in the book i mean we have to, we have to do better than we're doing right now if we're going to win the future look uh we are already seeing uh a a Congress that has become completely dysfunctional over the over the pres over the eight years of his of his presidency, and you're seeing things happen in the states that, whether you're a Democrat or you're a Republican, you you of scratch your head and say this is not normal, right? Uh, when in when in North Carolina, the state ledge, not my words, but the the courts say you are intentionally doing things to make it harder and stop African Americans from voting. Again, not my words. The courts right. say these things. So we're we losing our sense of normalcy in, 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 in this country. And my fear is, look, when one group plays a zero-sum game to hold on to power, that's not democracy and I think what I argue in this book is that if if we are first and foremost believe in the values of democracy and believe in the ideals laid out by, by the founding fathers about democracy uh, we're gonna have to do a better job um and then playing the zero-sum game and and understanding that that it is a sort of a transferring of, of, of power to a certain extent historically uh, but it but it's American to American you know uh, black and brown people are making up a larger portion of the electorate black and brown people are sort of flexing their political muscle and having a say uh in who and who governs and how and how and how we're governing and I and I, and I argue in this book that we're in fact seeing a backup we're seeing a backlash of that with, with 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 the historical group that's been in power mm-hmm. losing power if you if you played a zero zero-sum game but I don't point fingers what I try to argue is look uh Demographics are destiny. You know, we're not going to become less black and right. brown. Yeah, no. okay. <laughs> so we so we have to no. solve for this. No. We, we're no. not right. So we so we in fact have to solve this from for this on both sides. And what you've seen over the last couple of years, I would argue, is really and look. You know, and again, I'm I'm not playing partisan here. But when you look at the rhetoric that you saw in this past election, it's straight out of George Wallace, right? Um, And when you, and I would argue that that Trump really ran the Southern Strategy 2.0, he rebooted it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. And instead of just the, 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 and and let's be clear, the Southern Strategy was a real thing. Atwater, diabolically brilliant, right? Uh, Pitting one group against another has worked in American politics for a long, long time. I would, it it worked less so with with Barack Obama because of the changing demographics, but it still was able to, Coalesce a a majority of the white and Trump was able to reignite it. Yeah, he reignited. He he actually built upon it because I would argue to to the blacks he he added he added the Mexicans and 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 the the Muslims the horde coming at the gate coming to get us.
2: Uh, The book is a Black Man in the White House, Cornel Belcher. It's just out and uh, it's available. We'll have a link up on our website. It's also available. Uh, anywhere good books are sold, hopefully your local independent bookstore, or you always uh, go to Amazon.com. I have heard from um, um, many of my African American friends and colleagues, uh, some of the, some of the White House and the press corps, that a, a um, disappointment that President Obama, as the first African American president, didn't do enough about race relations, that he maybe held back a little bit because he didn't want to be seen just as the black president of the United States. Do you share that disappointment, or do you think he did everything that he could?
3: Look, I think, again, understanding where our country was. I mean, the, the, the presidency is a is a, is a is a big job, right, and so, sort of focus on, on economics recovery and also focusing on health care. I mean, we, we've got a lot of back and forth about health care right now, but but truth of the matter is 20 million more people do have health care now in this country than they had it before, and 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 sure prices are, are rising. But prices have always been rising. But what they can't—they're rising a lot less. than They're, they're rising, used to, lo- right? We we, we we have we have we yeah. have we have been. So he's done a lot of he's done a lot of things to sort of help working middle class uh, um, Americans. But but I do push back on this idea that you know he could have done more for for one group or another. Uh, and I and it's funny that you know I, I hear certain groups of African Americans and saying you know, he could have done more for, for blacks. Yeah. Uh. But that is, But he couldn't have been just president of for Black America. He had to be president of all Americans. And I think he put in place policies that help rise all boats.
2: It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Alex Seitzwald, political reporter at MSNBC, good friend of the program, making his first appearance in 2017. What took you so long? Well, you know, it's, uh, <laughs>
4: I, was, I was here at 1231 on January 1st, <laughs> but
2: uh, no one was here. I don't know. I, I tried. Good to see you, Alex. Good to okay. see you, too. Thanks for uh, being back. I hope you had a good break. Uh, So among the things that uh, you can't believe he said this, kind of maybe we put it in the next category, Uh, Mitch McConnell had something to say yesterday about any plans that Democrats might have to um, not to immediately embrace uh, President Trump's, President now elect, still elect, but someday President Trump's first nominee to the Supreme Court. Here's Mitch McConnell. Apparently there's yet a new standard now which is uh, to not confirm a Supreme Court nominee at all. I I think that's uh, something the American people simply will not tolerate and we'll be looking forward to receiving a Supreme Court nomination and moving forward on it. Alex, how dumb does he think we are, right? <laughs> yeah, I think I think
4: the one lesson of 2016, or a lesson of 2016, is that the American people will tolerate you not approving a Supreme Court nominee because that is exactly what yeah. Republicans did. That new standard was the standard that he set with Merrick Garland, right. you know, delaying
2: it for nine months. Who was nominated last March, right, by President Obama, the Supreme Court, who didn't even get a hearing, right? Not, not, no, no vote, no, but not even a hearing. Right, And this is the way these things always work, right you know at one the,
4: the party in power criticizes the party out of power for blocking things and then the roles reverse. But I think just as Harry Reid I think is now a little bit regretting doing away with the filibuster in 2013 for you know cabinet appointments, I think Mitch McConnell is going to have some regrets about uh, you know
2: blocking the Supreme Court appointment now that they're the shoes on the other foot. There certainly should will I, I would imagine that there's certain some Democrats, um, who won't be in any hurry to meet with whoever that nominee turns out to be, right? I mean, why, why should they rush it, right? Why should, absolutely. I mean,
4: yeah, the, the you know, the 8-8, eight, eight, the 4-4-8 the, the four, four, uh,
2: person court is
4: more favorable to them than a hardcore conservative court if uh, you replace Scalia with somebody like that, which we certainly would expect to happen. And, you know, the more you delay all of these appointments, the more time the Senate takes on nominations, the less time there is for legislation, for anything else that the mm-hmm. uh, Senate needs to do. Because, you know, it, it, there's a limited bandwidth there. So the more Democrats can delay things, the less
2: the Senate can get done. And that's good for Democrats. Right. Uh, and um, it will be hard, for, not not that they won't make the case, hard for, make the, for Republicans to make the case that the court is in such dire shape. It's so bad they can't operate on a four to four. we must must must. There's just an urgency to do this right away, right? I think they kind of gave up the the ghost on that one <laughs> yeah uh, yeah, all we'd have to do is play back some of their comments from from last year. Um, another item came up yesterday um, you mentioned um, Michelle Kaczynski at the uh, at the White House briefing. I was there as well uh, got the attention of um, press secretary Josh Ernest on an issue that has been of great concern to those of us cover the White House. Uh, Alex, here's uh, the brief exchange with Josh Ernest yesterday. Uh, I was wondering, have you had an opportunity yet to
0: um, meet with or to speak with the person who's been designated as your successor at the podium? I did have an opportunity yesterday to meet with uh, Sean Spicer, the the gentleman that has been uh, uh, hired by uh, the President-elect to uh, succeed me as the White House press secretary. Uh, We certainly talked about some of the uh, uh... complicated logistics of uh... of working in this environment but you know we also talked a little bit about uh... the approach to the job that uh... that jen and i have taken in fulfilling our roles at the uh, at this white house and uh, it was a good conversation and i uh, i know that he's excited about the opportunity and i uh, and he should be
2: uh... he's talking about he mentions uh, jen jen saki who's the uh, now communications director um, uh... and so they did nobody that was kind of news that he had met with sean spicer the day before um, so I asked him um, what, if the subject, whether about daily press briefings, came up. Josh said, "You know, that was up to them to decide." But then I pressed him into what Josh's recommendation would be if asked by Sean Spicer. Uh, here's what I want to talk to you about. Here's Josh Ernest. What would your advice be about the importance or the wisdom of daily press briefings? Yeah.
0: Well, the, the the argument that I've made in the past is I think that there is. Uh, genuine value to the day-to-day engagement that, uh, that I have with all of you. Uh, the symbolic value of the President hiring somebody to play a senior role in his staff, to come out here every day, on camera, on the record, uh, and answer whatever questions you guys dream up, uh, and be an advocate for the policies uh, that the President has prioritized, and be held accountable for knowing what the President thinks, faithfully expressing his view, and being factual and accurate.
4: What do you think? I mean, I, I think that's right. And there's a lot of different kinds of press secretaries. He's really strong saying, no, this
2: is in our interest to hold these dis- uh, press briefings every day.
4: Right, right. And uh, and I, I like what he said about the symbolic value of, you know, having somebody. Because really, the, the press secretary to do their job. They have to be in on top meetings. They have to speak with the president because they have to kind of channel what the president is thinking. And it is a major symbolic role that that person who, you know, gets to be so close to the president, a very restricted who gets to be around the president, then goes out every day and talks to the press any question they dream up, as, as he said. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, just listening to his voice and knowing Sean Spicer, if you know Sean Spicer, I, I know Sean Spicer, we all know Sean Spicer, the difference in tone of Josh Earnest in this, you know, very methodical, thoughtful Pace of the way he speaks, and Spicer is just a, a, the complete opposite—bomb-throwing kind of guy. Loves to to mix it up, and I think that's indicative of, you know, the Trump administration in general and his treatment of the press. And it's uh, it's gonna be a wild ride for the well, White House press corps.
2: You know, um, Sean Spicer is to Josh Earnest like Donald Trump is to Barack Obama, yes. right? Yeah, in, in a sense yeah, of a styles. Uh, I don't know Sean Spicer, but what from what I've seen on the on the tube is that. Yeah, he's really an in your face kind of confrontational guy. I mean, I can imagine it'll be very, uh, um, maybe hostile is too strong a word, but contentious press briefings. Uh, if if he has them every day or when he has them, he's got to have some of them. Right. I mean, yeah, I wonder if the roles could be reversed. I mean, you know, we
4: we call them flax, right? You're you're the press secretary yeah. because it's like you go out there and you put on a flak jacket and you just take hits all day. And that's the job and you're supposed to be taking the hits. I wouldn't be surprised if the roles reversed and it's Sean Spicer from the podium throwing out the punches at the press, you know, you grandstanding Mm -hmm. in the way that some Mm -hmm. reporters grandstand against the press secretary to take shots at the media for, you know, all the terrible things that that we do uh, every day. So I could see if you want to make a pitch to the Trump administration on why they should have daily press briefings, I mean, that might be the most strategically effective way to do it, to tell them that it will help in their argument that, you know, the press is the problem with everything
1: but. you know I, I know that like obviously part of the presidency is delegating to other people and having them do that but it, there is something sort of brewing where trump has found the group of people to sort of do his bidding in his own voice right like sean spicer is the perfect guy to go and just yell at the press because right. trump just can't like doesn't have the time, I guess, to do that. Mike Pence, when he went to the Hill yesterday, I, you're not going to see Donald Trump meeting with members of Congress and going through the nuances of the replacement for Obamacare, right? Like he has someone to do that for him. Trump is just sort of going to kind of need to coast. Because... I, and, and I don't mean that to be you know uh, flippant. I I just I don't think he really cares about this stuff.
4: I I, mean, I always think back to that Robert Draper piece in the New York Times where. Allegedly, uh, one of Donald Trump's sons went to John Kasich, asked him to be vice president, and said, you'll be in charge of everything. Yes. What will Donald Trump do? Be in charge of making America great again. That's it. Mm -hmm. That's it.
1: I I have no doubt in this world Uh, that that's the uh, same arrangement he made with Mike Pence. Right.
2: Very often, we just snag some member of Congress walking by on his way to work. Uh, <laughs> that's how it works. Senators, cabinet secretaries, members of Congress. Uh, uh, seriously, but we are honored to be joined this morning uh, by a good member of Congress from California, California's 36th congressional district, the great Coachella Valley, Congressman Raul Ruiz, re- re-elected and sworn in again and back as a member of Congress. Congressman, good to see you. Good to see you. It's and an, an honor you, to be here. Okay. You had a very, very historic meeting yesterday um, with the president of the United States—an hour and a half. Yes. Uh, and I know it was that we of uh, the members of the media were not invited in. But what was the president's message to you, uh, particularly on Obamacare?
5: Well, let me give you a, a little bit of a context of why uh, his meeting, in particularly, connected with me as an individual. I grew up in Coachella, right there in the Coachella Valley, and both my parents were farm workers. I lived in a trailer growing up. Mm. Uh, my uh, my older brother was the first to graduate from high school, and uh, a high school counselor paid for my college application because we didn't know how I was going to get to college, and my dad didn't know how he was going to pay for college, so I went around the community Uh, and I uh, would, I wrote up a contract, I was 17 years old, and I would offer small business owners an opportunity. I said, I'm offering you an opportunity to invest in your community by investing in my education, because I promise you, I had one goal in mind, that was to be a doctor, and I said, I promise you, I will be a doctor and come home and serve the community. And so they all pitched in 20 bucks, 40 bucks. Mm -hmm. I raised $2,000 that summer, paid for a couple years' worth of school books at UCLA, went to Harvard Medical, school, the Harvard Kennedy School, the Harvard School of Public Health. After I finished all my training and my residency program at Pittsburgh in emergency medicine, became board certified, went back home to fulfill that promise. And my life mission has been about health equity. And it's not uh, uh, a slogan that one puts out there. It's something that I have personally lived being on the other side of what it means to not have health insurance, what it means to, to have family members who endure pain uh, because they are afraid that if they go to the emergency department they're gonna go bankrupt mm-hmm. um, or or you know grandparents who before was were so worried about having to pay for their medicine and just living you know not even check by check. It's just like dollar by dollar and figuring out if they're gonna if they're going to eat the next day uh, because of those costs. So when I went back home, I started doing a lot of grassroots community organizing led a healthcare initiative uh, that uh, created a strategy to improve healthcare access uh, started uh, free clinics with organizations like Volunteers in Medicine started a pre-med mentorship program and so This is
2: before Obamacare, right? This
5: is before uh, Obamacare, this is before me running for Congress. This mm-hmm. is me as a community physician. Uh, and and you know I saw I saw seniors who after I would hold my community forums would walk to, to big trash bins and and I, because, I mean, being curious and caring for the senior I'd follow her and I said what are you what, you know what are you doing because I saw her digging in there and she said well I'm I'm collecting cans because uh, I don't have enough for my insulin but they're like but don't worry doctor i only take half half my dose so it, so that it can last hmm. right yeah you know a- so or, or like, I'd taken care of patients who come into the emergency department—young women who, who don't have health insurance, uh, who have had a lump in their breast for quite some time. But now that their sisters vis- visiting them for the holidays, they insisted that they had to see a doctor, so they brought her to the emergency department. And sure enough, she had a mass as big as a lemon in her breast and who knows what that is, right? She she would have to go have a biopsy and determine what kind, how aggressive. But she's a mother, a mother of, of, of children. And it's these kind of decisions that everyday people have to make and go through that that, that uh that affect their lives and their f- children's lives their parents lives their families lives that are real that people live with stress and anxiety out there and so when I'm in this meeting and now I, I find myself in Congress right I've never held office before I never wanted to run for office before um, but I'm in office so that I can help that young woman, so I can help that senior, so I can help my patients by fighting for health equity and all those social determinants that, that determine whether a person can live happy, live, live uh, with the freedom of poverty, uh, the freedom of anxiety, uh, and, and be you know, liberated to fully live their full, to their full potential. Uh, so I'm sitting in this meeting with uh, President Obama, with the with senators and other my colleagues in in, in Congress, and uh, and representatives, and and we're and he's talking, and and what struck me the most was the difference between this president and the president elect, because President Obama did not talk about his money his fame his his uh he did not talk about uh all the wonderful accomplishment he did not once say uh he did not once measure, mention the word legacy um what he talked about were people. Mm. We talked about uh letters that he had read from people. There's no press there. There's no need to mm. to say things like this for to to persuade the American public to vote for him one more time, right? Yeah. Th- this is about him saying this is always about the people. And this is what connected with me because this is the only reason why I stepped aside from my my passion of practicing medicine as a physician in the trenches in in the community uh, to come out here in D.C. Leaving my young family, I got twin girls, 21 months, uh, oh, wow. Sky and Sage, and my <laughs> my wife Monica. Uh, and and I love them, you know, more than anything in this in, on this earth. But uh, but it's that it's that message to serve my patients, to 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 help people, and that's what the Affordable Care Act does. Okay, it's not a it's not a, a, f- a democratic flag or a partisan flag. It is a tool and a mechanism to help people live better lives and that's what oftentimes gets forgotten in this political ideological partisan warfare that happens here way too often that we forget about the young man who have who has ulcerative colitis who's embarrassed to go to work because they have constant chronic abdominal pain or have chronic diarrhea they don't know and and their insurance and then on top of that they don't know uh, how they're they're going to pay for health care you know before uh, the affordable care act uh their health insurance cost was way too high because it was a chronic illness or some insurance companies wouldn't even take them and now they, they have insurance, they can afford their medication, they have the appropriate procedures, they, they can go to work, they can feel like a normal human being. I know this story because it's a cousin of mine.
2: Oh, really? Yes.
5: Yeah. And so, so these, are, these are important stories uh, that individuals face, and if, and if we take that away from them, then we are not only taking health care or affordability, but we're taking a sense of dignity. We're taking a sense of liberty. We're taking a sense of of security for people to be to live uh, their lives the way they want to live, and this is very important. And I don't think the American people have fully understand, uh, except for those, you know, twenty plus million who have benefited from from the Affordable Care. So, Act. do you
2: think the Democratic Party has failed in telling that? Story and telling, getting that powerful message that you've brought to us out to the American people—that this is why Obamacare is is so important. Oh man, or the Affordable you Care You know, Act. I'm,
5: I'm I'm new. I'm relatively new. I just uh, this is I'm going now into my third term, uh, and uh, and I can tell you that when I came in, um, there's a lot of members who lost. Uh, because of the Affordable Care Act, so for a lot of senior members, it's uh, it's almost like survival guilt, uh, and so they don't w- they don't want to 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 uh, look at uh, criticizing the Affordable Care Act because that that is the reason why they sacrificed so many members because they helped people, mm-hmm. uh, and so. I think that, that the message that I'm bringing is that this is not about waving a Democratic flag. This is, not, this is not even about Obama. It's not about Obama. It's not about Obama's legacy. It's not about the Democratic Party. It's, not about, it's about the people that we are here to serve. It's about the patients that now can go see a doctor.
2: And the twenty-two million, yeah, 22 who, million who will be plus. But yeah. but uh, Alex, that is the message I think, right? That that the president carries with him yeah. a, uh, every day, and I think the Democratic Party has to carry with him in this in this ongoing battle uh, over it, Obamacare.
4: Yeah, and I think it's been lost in these past seven years that we've been debating this. But I, I just wonder now that we're here and the the consequences are real because you do have people who are actually on They're this. Very real. How do you now tell that story? How do you you know not just make it uh, this partisan battle, this this kind of litmus test of Obamacare well, and actually see, tell those people's stories? see,
5: heres here's, here's my, my my view on this is that I see myself as an amplifier of the voice of the people. And one of the the, the, the most important things that I can do is to empower the people, empower my community. So it is not just me telling my story, but if we can empower our citizens, if we can empower the the grassroots, if we can empower um, families who have been shy to tell their story or who uh, don't really participate in in policy decisions uh, to speak up, to call their members of Congress, whether Republicans or Democrats. Tell them how now you can afford that very important medication that is helping you breathe. Uh, Tell them how you have noticed that you have saved, seniors have saved on average nearly $2,000 a year. And uh, on medications, uh, talk about this in your churches, in your schools, and stuff. Is it, it, that is I think is going to be a a, uh, a a a very important strategy. But also, it's um, mem- leaders and people who have the the honor of of being able to sit in front of Bill. Uh, you know in the Bill press show to to talk about these things need to step it up and do that. And, and I think that's what that's what we need to do.
1: The parting shot with Bill Press. This is the Bill Press show. Well, it's a question that everybody is asking. How
2: are we going to survive four years of Donald Trump? It's a good question, and I think the answer is clear. Two words. Fight back. Yes, indeed, we're going to fight back and not let Donald Trump get away with bad things. Fight back with all the tools we have, and I'm talking about all of us at every level. First Democratic members of Congress, of course, and then Democratic governors and members of the state legislatures, progressive organizations, political activists everywhere, no honeymoon for Donald Trump, fight back and then batten down the hatches and hold each other tight. It's only four years. That's my parting shot for today. I'm Bill Press. This is The Bill Press Show.